it would be totally crazy for us to put a car manufacturer in Hawaii because the volume's not high enough. But what about if I told you that car manufacturer can not only make cars, but could make manhole covers one day, and the next day could make light bulbs, or the day after that, it could make that new pineapple cutter that we need because they got a lot of pineapples there. Or it makes glasses the next day because you need glasses because the service industry needs glasses to make their margaritas in. That's flexible manufacturing. And what I'm trying to tell you is that's reality today. That's You're listening to Making It in Ontario the official podcast of the Trillium Network for Advanced Manufacturing. To chase scale manufacturing or not to chase scale manufacturing? That is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortunes and capital expense to make only one product or to take arms against a sea of established manufacturing convention and try to manufacture bespoke products at scale prices through advanced technology, and by investing in new tech, beating other low-cost regions at their own game, to build, perchance to manufacture, and to idle our machines no more. I've been thinking about that soliloquy a lot since I started learning about advanced manufacturing in Ontario. But anyway, hello and welcome to Making It in Ontario the official podcast of the Trillium Network for Advanced Manufacturing. I'm your host, Nick Persichilli, and in today's episode, I chat with president of Laval Tool and fellow Star Trek fan, Jonathan Azapardi. For those of you who have spent any amount of time in Ontario's mold industry, you know who he is, and you know he's a forward thinker. For those of you who don't know him, you'll get a pretty good sense of who he is during this episode. So as you'll recall, I mentioned that he and I are both Star Trek fans. I mention this because during my life, I've noticed that by and large, Star Trek fans tend to have a unique worldview and perspective on things. They like to ask what if. As far as advanced manufacturing goes, there exists no better dreamland than main engineering on board the USS Enterprise D. Geordi and Data could make almost anything down there using just the technology of the ship. The tractor beam isn't powerful enough to move a small moon? Run warp power through it. Crew members contracted a strange virus that messes with people's DNA? Use people's last transporter signature to eliminate the malicious virus from one's genetic code. The ship can't maneuver fast enough to avoid temporal distortions in a nebula? Use a shuttlecraft and fly it a few kilometers ahead to make those maneuvers in advance. I believe that's called edge computing today. Need to find a way to get the Enterprise out of a trap that keeps sapping all of your energy? Make a digital twin of the Enterprise on the holodeck back when it was being built to see how to make modifications to your warp core without actually making them on your warp core. Now, in that episode, Jordy also made a digital twin of Dr. Leah Brahms without her consent or knowledge, and that was problematic for reasons, but we won't touch on that here. When you grow up with this stuff, it can rub off on you. A transporter beam is not a medical tool, but it was used to save a life. A shuttlecraft is not meant to be a joystick for an entire starship, but it worked. A phaser is a powerful weapon, but on the right setting, it can also brew coffee. Okay, that last one was from the original series, but you get my point. Tools can and often do have more than one function. Now, there's one piece of technology on the Enterprise that truly stood out for me, and that's the matter replicator. This device could replicate any kind of matter, from tea, Earl Grey hot, or a replacement part for a shuttlecraft. It's all just matter, right? Just arrange the atoms in a way to make tea or a piece of structural metal. Matter is matter. And the microphone I'm speaking to you right now, a Rode NT1, by the way, is just a machined metal cylinder with metal mesh protecting a capsule. There's an included plastic pop screen which is plastic, and a metal shock mount, which is, well, metal. I asked Jonathan why we can't make this here. I looked at the bottom of the mic, and I found out that it was made by a fellow Commonwealth country, Australia. Why do they get to make it? The answer is we can make it here. We can make anything here. So what's the holdup? Jonathan and I get into that exact question. So let's see how we can make it in Ontario. And I'm being told by Zoom that there is a recording in progress, and now we can actually start chatting. It's Nick again, and I am chatting with Jonathan as a party. And rather than uh, me telling the story of who he is, for those of you who don't know, uh, John, why don't you give us a quick introduction about yourself? Okay, so I'm uh, happy to be here with you today, Nick. Just a great opportunity to be able to converse with you about manufacturing and any opportunity to tell the world about what we do and what I do is any opportunity we jump on. So thank you right up front. Thank you to you and to Trillium. Telling you about me. Okay, so I'm really not that interesting. I'd be honest with you. I, I, I'm a second generation mold maker. My dad started uh, the mold making business 
in the 70s. He had been a mold maker uh, since the uh, 60s. And to be honest with you, he kind of just created this, this corporation that was built around tooling, right? So we started out as mold makers and we made molds for about, let's say 30 years. And then all of a sudden we found out that being a mold maker just wasn't enough, right? We, we, were encount we encountered, let's say 10, 20 years ago, what Canada is encountering today which is that to be, you know, pigeonholed and a specialist in one uh, element of the industry wasn't enough, right? The, there are people that are doing that right now at much lower cost and about the same quality, to be honest with you, like in China. And we found out, you know, I'd say about 15 years ago that that just wasn't enough. So we had to start to look at services that were, you know, at the front end of the tooling and at the back end of the tooling. So we had to become specialists in the areas that we would normally hire somebody for or things that our clients would typically do. So we had to learn to be engineers and we had to learn to be um, amazing uh, designers, product engineers, and we had to learn how to make parts. So the company we, we actually uh, run today does have tooling involved. We're a mold maker still, um, but we do all of the engineering that our clients would typically do or that they would hire a company to do. That's us, product development right from concept. And we build all of the tools that would build that product. And now we actually make the product ourselves. So we, like you would see like a Magna or a Linamar or, or um, Lexingate who makes the products, we do that as well, but we do it at a much lower volume where they wouldn't want to play in that space where they need those high volumes to be able to make money at it. We figured out how to make money doing the same exact thing, but a much wider scope, but at a much lower volume. Um, so we like to think that we're kind of, we're kind of the epitome of flexible manufacturing. But wait a minute, Jonathan, I thought that doing things in small batches meant that things weren't as efficient. What are you doing? This sounds almost revolutionary. Well, Nick, now that's the secret sauce. This is why people don't want to do this. Um, they want to do the same thing over 100 or 200 or 1,000 or 100,000 or a million times, right? Once they get the process down path, they just want to repeat the process, right? That's how they make money. They make money in volume, right? So what we've said is there's a space where nobody wants to be in. Nobody wants to get into this space where you have to get really good at something in a very short period of time or a very short run of parts. That's where we make our money. That's where we've made our, our, our niche. We whittle a niche. I like to tell the guys, we whittled a niche in a tree that didn't exist, let's say, 20 years ago. We <laughs> created the niche. Now, we grew the tree. We whittled the niche. And now we're just trying to, you know, reinvent the wheel. So, so let's, let's go back real quick because I, I want to take advantage of the fact that you have some historical uh, knowledge and experience. What can you say has changed in the mold industry from when you know you and your dad were first starting out to today? Aside from the obvious, like technology and things like that, but like what else has changed? Well, you know, it's it it goes back to the days of when my dad came from Europe and when all the Europeans came over to Canada. And I'm going to say that that started 70 years ago plus, right? We had dye makers. You know, mold making and dye making really kind of found its 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 roots here in Windsor. Most people don't know that, but you know, we we were that we were that place where a lot of the Italians and the and the English and the Germans settled, and southwestern Ontario is where dye making and mold making really found its roots. So they brought that technology here, and when they brought it here, they were specialists. I mean, let's just be totally honest; they were like the only ones in the industry, let's say, 70 years ago. So they were in high demand. Um, it was a specialized, very kind of black art kind of technology. Um, the, the Europeans brought it here, so they really were the only ones that were kind of bringing that technology to North America. Fast forward 70 years, yes, we are still probably the third most sought after mold making and dye industry in the world. But number one and number two, you wouldn't think, but they're China and Germany. Um, and China and more in particular does it at a much lower cost. So we're still specialists, but we're not as specialist, as special as we used to be. Because now the Chinese have figured out how to do this in mass, huge volumes. So I'll give you a bit of an example. We have in Canada about 216 mold makers. The same specialist in China, they have 11,000 mold makers. So it gives you wow. an idea of the, the just the, they're a juggernaut, right? They've just taken what we brought, which we thought was special, and it still is. But they've just exploited it to the rest of the world. Um, at such the magnitude that what is that like several hundred times more so it's great yeah big numbers yeah well so john when you and i i think for the benefits for the benefit of the people who weren't on that original call that uh you and i were chatting about originally chatting about your your work with digital twins right and then from that discussion we ended up talking about how 
you basically want to do everything that China doesn't want to do. And every, literally every other person I've spoken with on this podcast and off of the podcast has said, scale, you got to do scale. You got to be able to millions of products, control C, control V, 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 all of that. And then you were like, no, I want to do what China doesn't want to do. And that was like, whoa, the reason I'm compelled by you saying this is because I know you're a Star Trek fan. And I feel like Star Trek fans tend to think of things in a different way. Yeah. And I like that. And I think, yeah, so I, I'm not a manufacturing guy. I'm, a, I'm just a comms guy. Um, but I've, I've come to understand a little bit about what's going on with the manufacturer. So tell me, why does China hate, what, what does China hate doing? And why, why and how do you want to do it? Okay, so you got to learn a little bit about our history, just a little bit. So please, the reason, yeah, the reason why we say we do what China doesn't want to do is because when low cost kind of infiltrated my industry, um, they were doing it at a much lower cost than we could ever do it. We were never going to get to their costs, right? So we had to do things that couldn't be measured by the same uh, measuring stick, right? So we didn't compete with them. We did the things that they didn't want to do. So yeah, you could measure me as a, just a straight up mold maker and just say, yeah, this mold costs 25,000 in China, it costs 100,000 in Canada, well, we're just gonna go to China. But now when I add things to the equation that China won't do, you really can't put me in a box. Like if I'm a mold maker only, I fit in this box of a mold maker. But now I add all these things to the equation that aren't in the box, and now the box doesn't exist. So is it really 25,000 versus 100,000? Or is it I'm bringing so much value to the table that 25,000 is irrelevant. You have to do work with this guy because he just does all of these other things, which we can't quantify, but we know we don't want to do. And the Chinese won't do it. So I'll give you an example. They don't like risk. China does not like risk. They really like to just do the same thing that they've seen done before and just repeat it over and over and over again, just keep doing it over and over and again. And even if the same thing that they're doing isn't exactly the same, as long as it's close, they'll do it again a thousand times. And that's where they fail. That's where they don't do really well at because what do they do? They try and repeat the same thing and then it fails and then they just back away and they say, no, I don't want to do that anymore. So we took that space that I just described to you where there's that uncertainty, where there's a risk, where so many of our clients, you know, are struggling right now with on whether they're going to have success or not. Whereas China says, don't come to me until it's a proven product and a proven process. We said, we're going to take it at the beginning of this and we're not only going to take it for full risk. We're actually going to show you how you can do it faster and better because we own the process. And that's what Laval does. We take the process and we own it. We create it, we modify it, we improve it, and we take it to the next level. And by that time, we've not only taken it away from China, but we've actually done it better than China because we've added technology and automation and, like you said, digital twinning. So let's talk about what digital twinning is for a second and how it yes, plays please. into this. Digital twinning is us showing the client in advance that we can actually prove out the product, that we commit to excellence before the product even ever becomes a reality. So we are showing the client the end product, but at the beginning. So now we're kind of being able to play a role, not only as you know we can design the product, but we can now show you the process and simulate the process and actually find all the, the bugs in the process. Now, once we have the client with the product and the process, there's not much left to be done. And then we can actually take the product to, to, to market with them. And then we actually can actually show them finished product. And now we're, we're a valued supplier. Whereas China just wants to take finished products and finished processes and just keep going. And there's a space for that, Nick, don't get me wrong. There's a space for mass production and China will continue to own it. Any low cost country will continue to own it. But Canada must become an advanced manufacturer and I define advanced manufacturing as regional flexible manufacturing. Regional, can you, can you elaborate? Okay, so regional flexible manufacturing. The, the purest definition of regional flexible manufacturing and a very intelligent friend of mine, him and I kind of bounce ideas off of each other, but the purest definition of regional flexible manufacturing is the day when a, like an island like Aruba or Hawaii starts to make their own cars to an OEM, that sounds ridiculous. That sounds totally on, and that's not possible. Like, Why would we put a manufacturing or an automotive or an OEM assembly plant in let's say Aruba or Hawaii? The day that we are able to make cars in those, on those 
remote places will be the day that we've totally uh, nailed flexible re regional manufacturing. So let's just say you live in Hawaii and you want to buy a $30,000 sedan. The only way to make that $30,000 sedan affordable to you is if it's made at the factory on mainland that's doing thousands and thousands and thousands of them. And then they ship it to you. Right. And yeah. I, okay. So, so I'm, so you're saying an Island, but I think Canada would probably face a lot of the same challenges as an Island. Don't they? Canada is an Island. If you look at it in a lot of ways, North America is an Island. Canada is an Island. Um, we're, we're, we, our population is, is widespread where it's not like an Island, but we're small, right? We don't have the juggernaut of the United States, which is a consumer. And we don't have the juggernaut of a, pro a producer like China. So in a lot of ways, we are essentially a Cuba or an Aruba or a Hawaii, um, just not geograph geographically or physically the same. So yes, the analogy is the same. We could be that person. And I, I totally believe that we would. So I'll give you the example. You know, Let's say Hawaii, right? Let's take it one step further. We said a car maker, right? And it would, make, it would be totally crazy for us to put a, a car manufacturer in Hawaii because the volume is not high enough. But what about if I told you that car manufacturer can not only make cars, but could make manhole covers one day, and the next day could make light bulbs, or the day after that, it could make that new pineapple cutter that we need because they got a lot of pineapples there, or it makes glasses the next day because you need glasses because the service industry needs glasses to make their margaritas in. That's flexible manufacturing. And what I'm trying to tell you is that's reality today. That's possible. See, what you just described, and this is going back to Star Trek, is the replicator. Exactly. Whether you want to replicate a, you know, T Earl Grey hot or, you know, the new, uh, hang on, I want to get an actual part here. Um, the phase, a new phase coil for the transporter, you <laughs> yeah. go to the replicator, right? Yeah. We were talking a little bit on, on our last call, and I think this was an insightful little chat. I, I, I use this example a lot. It's the power steering pump, right? 20 years ago, a luxury sedan or any sedan with power steering, you know, you wanted to have a, a car that has power steering. And that is a high, that historically has been a hydraulically actuated system run by a hydraulic pump that feeds off of the engine. And that pump, as we discussed, contains a lot of intricate little components that have to fit perfectly together. And it's a very intricate thing. Power steering is now electric. And I remember what you said at the time. It's like, oh, so all of a sudden that company, or, or I said, that company, if they were making power steering pumps, this electric power steering revolution is death for them. And you were like, what is a power steering pump? It's just a pump. What if they, instead of making it for power steering, you can take that pump and use it for anything else, right? How do we make that a reality? What needs to change? Because everything you're saying makes sense. And again, I know I'm not a pro, but what you're saying seems to make logical sense. We seem to, we seem to have the technology to produce things at whatever scale we want. So how do we make it so that you can order your pineapple cutter and your power steering pump and maybe an electric guitar pickup from the same factory? How do we get there? Nick, you ask a great question. That isn't easy to answer because most of the time our mind's not wired that way. Most manufacturing facilities are wired to scale, like you said, right? So they're thinking about, again, they think like the Chinese want, which is I, I make this pump and I wanna perfect that pump and I just wanna make that pump a thousand times more. But now you're starting to see that people are starting to use more simulation and better designs. And they're able to take their designs and do simulations with what they can do with those designs in other applications. So it starts with the simulation part of it, right? We're getting better at design, right? We're getting better at understanding our materials and our processes. So that's where it starts. But once you start to understand that the same product can be used in different areas, I'll give you an example, and it's an old example. We used to do it in the, uh, in the automotive space, is it, you know, four or five different car makers will use the same door handle, right? Well, now all of a sudden you've got commonized information, you've got commonized designs. Now, how do we exploit that to the next level, right? How do we take that door handle now and say, okay, well, now let's do the door mechanism. Well, now we can do the door mechanism. Let's see what the components are in the piece that we can now commonize with other products. And now what we're starting to do is we're starting to create catalogs of products and then we can create derivatives. So now you're commonizing. So it's really one central space of all that information is where you, where you start. The second thing is, is now you need factories that now understand all of the different products and that they can move in and out of those products quite simply. So I'll give you the example of my own plant. In my own plant, in the same cell, you'll see us produce a manhole cover. Maybe in the same day or the next day, you'll see me make an autonomous vehicle roof. The next day, you'll see me make a side-by-side -side Polaris uh, laser uh, bed. 
And then the next day after that, you might see me start to make um, bumpers or you might see me make something else for an OEM or automotive product all in the same cell. Because now what I've understood is that the, maybe the products are different, but the machinery is essentially the same. So now I just need to make the machinery flexible to be able to do all these different derivatives of different products. Now you're starting to understand when you have the flexibility with the information, now it's quite easy to go from product to product. You need the flexibility to be able to do that. And that's the changeover that we're starting to see. I'm trying to get people to understand that we now have robots and we have simulation and we have the ability to move materials and, and, and change materials so that we can actually have them do different products of totally different sector. Is this a cultural evolution that needs to take place? Oh, it's, it's ingrained very deep in us to want to commit to products or commit to OEMs, right? And when I say OEMs, people confuse that with just automotive, but OEMs are everywhere. It's just original equipment manufacturers. John Deere is an OEM, right? Right, right. Uh, Club Cars an OEM. Um, uh, American Bath Group, they're an OEM, right? So we like to commit to a single OEM and just kind of just totally exploit everything we can from that product line. I think the future for us is breaking free of the OEM and making flexible manufacturing plants that are prepared to do multiple different products, multiple different materials. I believe the future, and I know some people have told me I'm crazy, but factories that are totally committed to one client or one product is a thing of the past. The future will be plants like you see, and I hate to say this, but you remember Terminator where you had that, where the robots took over and they were making all of the different products on their own without even human beings knowing. Yep. I'm doing a, a small version of that in my own facility, essentially. Oh. So how's, uh, how's your Skynet coming? <laughs> well, I don't have Skynet, but I'm on the way to creating a cell that would do what Skynet does. Um, and I'm trying to not remove humans out of the equation, but allow humans to do other things while the robots are taking care of what humans used to do. Right. Is anything that you're doing right now, like the processes you're working on, are, they, are you ready to export them yet? Or are you still kind of just back of the napkin figuring out how to make it work in your shop? But, you know, remember the space I told you about, right? We make product at low volume, right? Yeah. So I'll get a client who calls me up and says, John, I need 50 of these, or I need 100 of these, or I need 800 of these, right? So I'm still doing it in my own shop. So I'm doing what essentially, you know, the rest of the world wants to do. I'm, and I'm still learning about it. Don't get me wrong. But at some point, what I'm going to do is I'm going to use this technology to show clients how that they can make their processes better and more efficient and how they can start to become a flexible manufacturer by using some of the practices and the technology that we have. My goal is that you could take countries, and I'm saying countries that are developing today, like let's say India, and they can actually start to become their own manufacturer of this product while I'm developing the processes and the technologies here. I'm basically creating a technology in a box that they land because they don't need human beings, right? They have an abundance of human beings. They, they have an abundance of a workforce. They don't need me, but they need technology. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to show them technology in a box. And the cool thing is, is they're going to be in India and I'm going to be here and they're going to be able to watch the whole process evolve from thousands of miles away so that when it does leave Canada and lands in India, they'll have an entire package that will be digitally uh, simulated as well as digitally commissioned before it even arrives in their country. Wow. That, that sounds like a product. That sounds awesome. So let's change, uh, let's change lanes just a little bit, going to a somewhat tangential topic of Industry 4.0. This issue we've realized is, well, Industry 4.0, based on everything that everyone's told me, is the only way the Ontario manufacturing stays competitive. I assume you would agree with that? Yep, I would. So adoption of Industry 4.0 best practices could be considered mission critical. No, well, with I will be honest with you. Without adopting uh, Industry 4.0, the manufacturing sector in in Canada and specifically in Ontario will cease to exist. Why are they having so much trouble adopting? Well, first things first. Let, let's let's put right on the table what the problem is. We're good at what we do. Yes. Like like Ontario, when it comes to manufacturing, I've always said it before. Ontario stands above all else because we're good at what we do, and you, we can basically do anything. I mean, it yes. sounds kind of crazy, but all the places I've visited in the world to accomplish what we accomplish in four hours, it sometimes takes an entire nation to do that. And we figured out how to get all of that into a space of about 400 kilometers, which is just wow. amazing. Yep. So we're not challenged like the rest of the world. 
not on the same scale. And I'll give you an example about India, right? If I want to make something in India, I might have to travel like to four or five different locations in India, get on planes, get on trains, put things on trucks, just to get something done simply because it's a simple process, but just the resources aren't available and they're, you know, like they're days away, right? So for them, it's really important, right? Because it's so expensive to move stuff around, right? In, in Ontario, like even in my own city, I have all of these resources at my fingertips. It's not expensive. They're readily available. I'm not challenged the same way as other people are, right? So the fact that I haven't been challenged means that the old ways stayed very strong and ingrained in our processes. So that, not, I'm not going to say it made us lazy. It didn't make us lazy. It just meant that we're complacent. And Canadians are typically naturally complacent people. So our greatest strength has been starving us of our victory, right? Because we are really good and it's very centralized. So that's the first thing that was, that was the problem. The second problem is, is that we can do it right now and it's profitable. For the most point, we've had a competitive advantage for years. Um, we've, we've had a good foreign exchange rate. We've had to our advantage for many years. And I'll go on record saying that about 20% is the break-even point. So when we were above 20, you know, the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, we were very profitable. And we've had a good string of years of that. Right now, we're at the 20, so we're starting to feel some of the pressures. But when you're profitable at something and you do it really well, you're not challenged to change it. So Canada, unfortunately, had three, like I said, specifically South Ontario, had three things that, we were, that were stacked up against us. Naturally, culturally, we're complacent people. We had everything at our fingertips, and we've been able to do it for profitable for a long time. That is changing very quickly, um, and that's why I said before, I feel very strongly that if we don't adopt the new ways, we'll become obsolete, because countries like China are starting to figure out how to do it low cost, they're also figuring out how to do high quality. And that is a bit of a scary thing. When they get those two things down path and shipping starts to reduce in cost, we will lose our competitive advantage very quick. So let's talk about some of the actual technology in Industry 4.0. Because in a previous podcast, Brendan and I kind of defined it as Industry 4.0 is not a tool in your belt. Industry 4.0 is the belt that contains the tools. So Let's look back. If you can think about going back and, you know, the back when it was from the seventies all the way to through to the eighties uh, into the nineties, how, and, and let's get nitty gritty here. What sorts of four po- industry 4.0 bits of technology have you seen adopted in over the course of the development of your shop? Well, see my definition of industry 4.0 is a little bit different than yours. Mine is a little bit more grassroots. It's on the shop floor kind of definition, right? Mine is the, is the collision of, of human and digital information, right? So you take the human element and you take the digital element and the collision between the two is industry 4.0. Now, what does that mean to me on the shop floor? You're like, well, information, is information really that important on the shop floor? You know, it doesn't help me weld something faster. Or it doesn't help me machine something faster. Or it doesn't turn the lights on in the morning. But in actuality, it actually does. Information is everything. How we move and use information is kind of the magic behind Industry 4.0. So for us, mold makers in particular, we've actually been implementing Industry 4.0 for, I'm going to say, probably pretty close to 30 years. And it's kind of crazy to think that. But we were the first, one of the first industries to actually use robots. Before robots were robots in in the Chrysler plant or in the GM plant or in the Ford plant, like people like to think of, or GE, mold makers were using robots in the form of CNC. Right, so CNC, right, computer numeric uh, machining, uh, computing, is a robot, right? It's using numbers to tell the machine where to go. is no different than what a robot does today. It was just a CNC machine. So we've been u- we've been manipulating and using information to drive our processes for much longer than everybody else. So what we need to do now today is use more information to better predict our success. And I've I've defined it for somebody else. I said. Industry 4.0 is nothing more than committing to excellence before you even start the process. Everybody else wants to do it after the process is started or use a process to achieve excellence. What I'm saying, Industry 4.0 is before you even start the process, it's committing to excellence. It's using the information that's coming in to predict success in the future. That's Industry 4.0 for us. And we use that with 
CNC machines, right up to software that tells us where the human beings are in my plant, right? Or when they're checking into different devices, or are they calibrating the right device? Or is the device actually calibrated to, to meet the specs of the client? Um, using, using cameras to actually take digital pictures of our products so that it can be compared inside the computer before a human being even sees it. You see how I'm using information in a different way. I'm, I'm removing the human element so that the, that the information becomes the, the fact finder or the, the, um, the check mark if it's good or not. Right. So I am speaking to you right now on something called a Rode NT1. This is a, I would say, probably an entry-level studio microphone, right? Now, I'm yes. looking at it, and it says made in Australia. Why can't we make this here? I go back to my first name. We can make anything we want in Ontario, right? We can do it. We can literally make that mic. I, I, there's no doubt in my mind we can make that mic. We have all the technology. We have all the processes. We have all the materials to be able to do it here. There's no reason we couldn't make it here. The problem is, is that we can't make it at the volumes that they think because we're not set up to do it. And this is holding back opportunities every day, right? If I can't make 10,000 of those mics, I'm not going to do it in Ontario because we're, we're built for scale of volume, right? Because today our mind is stuck around, we have to figure out how to do it and do it well, do it fast and do it as efficient as possible. The new mentality is, well, if you need that mic here today, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set up to be able to make that mic. And I'm going to show you how to do that. That's the, that's the mentality of the future. Being able to be self-sustainable is the future, I think, for Canada specifically. And which means we're, we're deglobalizing the world, which means we're centralizing manufacturing, which in a lot of times people don't like that. If you see what's going on in, in the world today, most people are telling you, well, we don't want to centralize manufacturing. All of the OEMs have, have basically done away with that. Before, an OEM used to make all of the components and control all of the processes when they made a car, right? I remember my dad saying that GM used to do stampings and they used to do injection molding and they used to do all the assembly and they did all the painting and the assembly. That was all under one factory. And Oshawa used to be like that. Oshawa had a staff of like 22,000 people. People don't realize that. 22,000 people were in Oshawa at one time. But when we were centralized manufacturing, we could employ that kind of people because we did everything in their in-house, right? Well, we went away with that. They became basically integrators, assemblers, right? They, they're assembly factories now, right? I'm saying we need to go back to that. And people think I'm crazy, and I probably do sound crazy. But what I told Ontario was, I said, you need to take that Oshawa plant. You need to buy that plant. And you need to detach it from, from GM. I don't want you committed to one OEM. I want you to lease that space to more than one OEM. And when one OEM says, you know what? I'm sorry, I don't have any product for there. You know what Ontario says? That's fine. I got another guy who's ready to come in. And you know what? He's from India or he's from Korea or he's from France. And now all of a sudden, these factories, this, 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 these square inches, these, these, this, this, this space that we have, has so much more value because we can use it across multiple product lines and it's just robots. It is robots and human beings working in a space that they can make anything. So going back to the example of this microphone, I have friends uh, in the music industry and some of them have this microphone as their personal mic. So this Rode NT1 microphone, entry level, studio quality, blah, blah, blah. There is a market, there's a finite market for it here in Canada and Ontario, Toronto, whatever you want to say. There's a, there are, there are people who want this microphone. And I know I'm being, I know I'm being overly simplistic here, but just for the purposes of this discussion, there's okay. a product right here, this mic right here, great microphone. I want it. I, like, why can't we do what 3M does and just be like, okay, well we build it where we sell it. Right. So road R O D E, right. Why can't they just say, okay, well, the Canadian market needs 500 road microphones per year. Okay, we'll set up a shop to build 500 road mics. They just need to set up a, maybe it's a small shop in Toronto, right? You know what I mean? Like, why doesn't that happen? Well, most people get stuck, right, on capital investment. That's where, like, this discussion ends really quickly when, when the guys who, do, who make road mics say, well, I got to invest a million dollars to make that microphone. And they're probably right that, you know, it doesn't make sense to invest millions of dollars because that's probably what it would cost to make that microphone for only 500. But what I showed you before is I'm going to invest probably half a million dollars in my, in my robot cell. And if that robot cell was only making product for, let's say, Tesla or for Waymo, then it's not worth it. 
But if I can invest that same half a million dollars, and now I got clients with Tesla, Waymo, Nordic, Polaris, uh, Striker, and all of those products are going through the same cell, now capital investment is used across multiple platforms, and now it's possible. So I don't know who else makes mics, but let's say it's Rhodes and let's say it's Ericsson, okay? Well, now I make mics for Rhodes, Ericsson, and let's say Sony. Well, now I have that product line that I can make those multiple products. And it goes back to the original analogy I was giving you about with the door handle. Remember the door handle where I said the Japanese automakers would make the same door handle? It didn't matter what it was, Toyota, Honda, Mitsubishi, it didn't matter. But the door handle was made for all of them. They decided early on that commonizing their product line was to their advantage, even though they were competitors. Your Rhodes mic is the same example. You now have to take it to the next level and all of those mic ma manufacturers work together so they can actually create this flexible manufacturing. I'm doing it in my own plant because they're my clients, right? But you could do this on a platform where you, know, you have a specialty microphone maker and he makes all of them for different products. And I'm not saying all the product would come from Ontario. We've got to be specific. Like maybe the microchips that we just can't, like because those are big factories, right? Maybe the microchips aren't made here. They're imported in because that factory is, you know, too far for us to do it. But let's say 90% of the rest of the product could be made in that factory. And now all of a sudden it is possible. It's all scalable, but you got to get away from high volume scalable. So is it possible that maybe it's just time to invest in better capital? Because if you look at this microphone, John, like, like just physically take a look at it, right? Like this is a little plastic piece here. Mm -hmm. You've got a wire mesh covering up the, uh, the, the, the capsule. This is a solid steel construction. So this was probably just lathed out. This is a solid steel mounting bracket. You've got a, a, a an elastic -y piece of uh, wire as the shock mount. This does not seem overly complicated. And I feel like you probably have machines to make a wire mesh. You have machines that could probably make this mold for the pop screen, right? Is it you possible to just invest in new kinds of like better tech and better cells? That's the, that is the key, Nick. What you just described there, you went through all of the different pieces in your microphone, but they're all different processes, right? And they're just different materials, right? So what we need to do is we need to get really good at processing materials. So it could be injection molding. It could be really low cost molds. It could be additive manufacturing. It could be 3D printing, right? It's the combination of all of these different processes that you're going to actually get to the, get to the final point of actually making a microphone. That's kind of what we're doing on much simpler products. So my job is, I, my entire team is focused on simplifying products so that they can actually be made of different, more simpler processes. So I'll, I'll give you a great example. So uh, Honda NSX, which is a, is a, everybody knows who Honda is. NSX is their, is their low volume, but really their sports car, right? Oh yeah. So they, they came to us and they said, okay, we want you to take these nine parts that are made of steel and we want you to make it into four. To figure out how to make it four parts in composites. So we took something that was very, very complicated and hard to make and took a lot of labor hours and a lot of capital investment. And they said, okay, make it into four. So we did, we made it into four, we made it a composite product. That's what technology allows us to do today. That's partly simulation and partly process and partly materials. But let's say we took that microphone that just, you, you just happened to be, you know, let's say 20 different pieces, we made it into four. So that's simplifying the product. And then we actually said, okay, we're going to make the product in a process that actually is low capital investment, has some additive manufacturing, uses some, some, uh, some flexible uh, materials. Now, all of a sudden, we simplified the product. Product's just as good. And oh, by the way, we can make that Ontario because we have everything here. That's how you make that microphone here in Ontario. So, okay, let's, let's, instead of a microphone, let's talk about cars. Do you think you could build a four-door sedan? Oh, no, no one's buying sedans anymore. Do you think you could build a small to medium-sized SUV for $40,000? Yes. In Canada? And, oh, yeah, for sure. 100%. I'll tell you why. You know, and, and, I, and don't take my word on it. I'll just give you examples. So we used to, we used to take seven years to develop a product in, in the space of automotive, right? Seven years used to be the time it used to take us to from beginning concept to the first time that somebody bought it on the, uh, on the lot. Today, we figured out how to go to four years. So our domestic OEMs today make uh, cars from concept to off the lot in about four years, domestic OEMs. Tesla, who has basically broken free of all of the, the old legacy uh, bad habits of the domestic OEMs, 
And now they're doing product from concept to off the lot in two years. So with using technology just on the upfront, and the upfront is the majority of the cost, we have figured out how to take something that took seven years down to two years. So right there, we've taken cost out of the product, first thing. The second thing is we can reduce capital. So if we make a plant, that, and I, this one's close and dear to my heart, the minivan plant per se, the minivan plant is committed to making minivans. But if it could make minivans today, and then tomorrow it could make, let's say, four-door sedans, and then next year it could make pickup trucks, now we figured out how to make the employees scalable and flexible. We figured out how to make the plant flexible uh, and scalable. And we now are no longer committed to products. We move in and out of products quickly and easily. So now you reduce the capital investment. You've made the human element and the manufacturing element so much more valuable now because it can do whatever product lines we want. So that plant could make lost losers, like your four-door sedan that you talked about, but it could make those market leaders like the F-150 in the same product line, in the same plant. So now that plant becomes so much more valuable. And you know who doesn't want to do that? China. But you know who does want to do that? Jonathan has a party. Canada or <laughs> Ontario. Um, and we can do it. We can totally do it. And this goes back to the original point I was giving you before is we want to do everything the Chinese don't want to do. Let's not beat them at their own game. Let's not. Let's just, let's just reinvent the game. I like that. And especially, and the other thing too, and that I don't think enough people are talking about this, investing in scale manufacturing has risks associated with it. Well, I can tell you all about that. I was that person. Uh, back in 2006, my manufacturing plant was fully committed to three clients. We were totally on the high hog of automotive. We had three clients. The entire plant ran on that. Um, and we were happy because those three clients kept us busy all the time. Well, all of a sudden, 2006 turns into 2008. And all of a sudden, the, the carpet gets pulled out from underneath us and we're done, right? We're sitting there, you know, three quarters of my plant, the lights are out. I've got 27 employees that I probably should have laid off most of them all working in their one space. All the lights are off. That was us, right? That's because we were totally committed to that one or two or three clients. That's what every OEM facility is today, right? If it wasn't for the unions, I'll be totally honest with you. If it wasn't for the unions and, and actually negotiating good contracts that actually keep, up, keep the work here, in a lot of ways, you'd probably see it move more than what you would, right? They would probably move it more often than they would. The investments keep them close, but I'm going to be honest with you. You got countries like Brazil who are giving plants away, giving money away to bring facilities in that we're not doing that. So, you know, going to that type of situation, you might, yeah, when you commit to high scale and uh, chasing it, you, it, I call the the automotive industries like crack cocaine. Once you're on it, you can't get off it, and if you try and get off of it, it's going to be the worst thing you've ever had to go through. Yeah. So. Uh, Automotive is great and I love it and it's my bread and butter and so many people I know are employed by it, but I'm going to tell you the truth. It's really tough to get off of it once you're on it. So if, let me ask you this then, if not auto, then what? It could be anything. It really could be anything. Like I mean, to be honest with you, once you get these products and these materials down path, we could jump into the environmental space. Let's say, you know, Canada is very big right now on, on green. Well, let's start making led lights. Let's start making LED sockets. Let's start making green boxes. Let's start making compost bins, right? And what I'm describing to you would be in the same facility as the as the guys that are making parts for cars, right? That's what, yeah, and that's what my my sort of like novice mind doesn't really understand. We have the capabilities to supply all the LEDs for all of Canada. Why are we importing any LED? And then the answer is because of everything you've just said, right? Because it's easy. Yeah. Easy, low cost. Somebody's doing it for us already. Remember what I told you before? We're not challenged, right? Yeah. If I was out in the, if I was on that island in Hawaii and I needed LEDs and we didn't have a way to get those LEDs in there, my factory would figure out how to do it, right? The same as what I've said, I have to figure out how to make product at a low cost because that's what my client wants. My client wants a competitive product with only 500 pieces. He can go to Magna and Magna will give him a competitive price at a hundred thousand pieces, but I got to figure out how to do it for 500. I've been challenged to try and find those solutions. The rest of the world hasn't been challenged because they can just go to Home Depot and buy that LED light, right? But if we start to think about, you know, if I continue to buy that LED light from China, my industry will continue to, to self-implode. I need to, to figure out a way to make that here. And here's the incentive to do it. 
we will start to do it. And, you know, as much as the United States, everybody's kind of looked down at them and said, you know, made in America is, you know, is anti-Canada. It's not really. We need to start thinking like that too. We need to start to look at our supply chains and say, you know what, how do we bring that supply chain back to Canada or back to Ontario? And if there's a willing buyer, there's a willing maker or a willing supplier, right? And that's where we need to start to look at, you know, what are we doing to restore up our supply chains? What are we doing to, to kind of create more of me and more of, of, of other suppliers who can adopt these technologies because we have a commitment from our own people here in Canada that they're going to buy Canadian. And if we get really good at this, it should be buying North American. I hate to say that, but North American needs to start thinking of itself as an island, you know, because the rest of the world is thinking like that. We need to start to, to mobilize together. You know, maybe Canada doesn't make all the products, but we make these certain products. We make batteries, for God's sakes. Let's say we make batteries. Okay, that's what we get really good at. And we just make batteries for all of the OEMs. It doesn't matter who you are, right? We're going to make them for Ford, Chrysler, GM, Toyota, Mitsubishi, uh, Kia. It doesn't matter. We're going to make batteries for everybody. That's flexible manufacturing. We're making batteries for all of these guys. A lot of people don't know this, but at the turn of, the, I think, the, the beginning of the late 19th, early 20th century, Toronto was a well-known global producer of pianos. World-renowned. We lost that industry. And, and obviously it's never come back, right? Like we don't, do you know of any famous uh, like piano manufacturers in Canada? No, right? Yeah. I hear a lot of people in the industry say, once you lose capacity, it's very hard to get it back. Is that true? Yeah, it is. And I'm going to give you a different analogy. Who stole my cheese, right? I don't know if you've ever read the book, but there's a great book. It's called Who Stole My Cheese? And what it means is that it was about a mouse chasing the cheese, chasing the cheese, and somebody keeps taking it away, right? Well, until one day you just stop looking for the cheese, right? Well, that's what they basically did. Somebody stole our cheese because we let them, right? We were a great piano producer. And you know, the funny part is I actually had a piano that was made in Toronto. No kidding. Um, what was it called? I don't remember. I remember I was moving it from my mom and this pop weighed so much. I had to open it up to try and figure out what made it weigh so much. And there's this huge steel casting on the inside where they put all the all of the uh, strings and it had right across it, Toronto. So it's funny you mentioned that. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, we let that industry leave, right? And the same is true for my own industry. My industry would have died in the 80s and probably would have totally exited in the 90s if we had let the low cost countries totally took over our industry and we didn't reinvent ourselves like we did, right? And I'm not just talking about me. I'm talking about all of my mold makers, all of, the, all of my... My, my comrades in this industry who have, have grown up with me and some before me and some will be after me, but we all evolved and we figured out ways to whittle that niche for each one of us. And now Canadian mold makers, believe it or not, are actually the largest mold makers in North America. And we actually have the largest mold maker in North America in this city because we evolved over time. We could have been that piano producing uh, industry in Toronto, but we decided not to be that. And we decided to find better ways to invent or reinvent ourselves to be able to manage inside this industry. And my advice to anybody who's trying to not be that piano producer is, is that don't stop looking at the process as a challenge, right? Don't get used to making the piano the same way. Continue to look at the industries that are trying to steal your cheese and, and not let them steal your cheese because they're going to do it. Uh, I don't know who makes pianos now, but I bet you... They're looking at this saying, mm, you had the industry and, and you let it go. That'll happen. That's going to happen all the time. That is, you are constantly at that threat every day of the week. It's unless you're challenged to try and keep it that you're going to let it go. We have been talking for almost an hour. And I want to definitely say, I, wanna, I appreciate the fact that you're chatting with me on a Friday over the <laughs> summer. John, oh. you are a, uh, you're a trooper. I, I really appreciate this. I, uh, I I could chat with you forever, but I think I've I have exhausted uh, the, the, the pretty much the questions I have, and uh, you've definitely inspired me maybe to think about things in a different way. What do you see? So, so let me ask you this: You know what Trillium's doing? How can we help you? How can we help the industry? Well, it's it's kind of been my my um, my mantra for a long time: is that Industry 4.0 right now is being sold to us by the suppliers, right? So if you want to learn about Industry 4.0, you're going to go to you know you're going to go to a website like ABB. Are you going to go to a website like Siemens, right? Or GE, one of these guys, right? And you're going to learn about Industry 4.0. That's not the best place to learn about Industry 4.0 because you're being sold a product, right? So Trillium's greatest strength 
is that they're not bound to any one industry or one industry or one piece of technology. You have the ability to kind of bring in all of those technologies. So Trillium can really kind of play a role to educate people like me who are trying to navigate industry 4.0 without being manipulated or driven by a, by a supplier, right? Who's trying to sell us something. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, is that I want manufacturers to not think about industry 4.0 as this huge, overwhelming uh, subject, because it is. It's, it is very all-encompassing. Pick one lane in industry 4.0 and, and drive down that lane. Don't try and do it all. Um, some of my manufacturers have looked at, you know, just digitizing standard forms. That's industry 4.0. We're trying to do flexible manufacturing in a robotic cell. That's the lane I picked. I'm going to stick in that lane and I'm going to get good at it. I'm going to invest in it and I'm going to continue to plow down that road. And once I get good at that, I'll, I'll start another lane. Don't try and do it all. Pick your lane, go down it, invest your money wisely. Uh, don't try and invest in everything. And then when you get that done, move on to the next lane and the next lane and the next lane. And that's how we found that, you know, we're going to attack industry 4.0 for us. You actually hit the nail on the head there because on the, on our industry 4.0 episode, I was chatting with Max Preston from Axiom and Robert Grout from Intex Tooling. And he they both kind of echoed what you just said. Industry 4.0 writ large is this kind of big, mysterious black box that like a lot of people don't... Re- and you're right. It's just pick a lane and, and just apply it to there. Like, for example, at Intex, they use Industry 4.0 to monitor their machines if they're still running and to schedule things, right? That's mm-hmm. it. And that's it. That's all. Yeah. Right. And that's all they, but that's all they needed. That was where their bottleneck was. It's like, oh, this machine shut down over the weekend, had to come back in and start it back up, which delayed that project, which delayed that project, which delayed that. So by seeing, oh, this machine is on. Oh, now it stopped. Why did it stop there? It stopped there because of this. And, but that's it. That's all they're using it for. They're not extrapolating what time of day is the best time and angle to inject plastic. And no, 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 no. Is the machine running? Yes. Can I schedule work three months from now? Yes. And And the funny part is, and it'll breed into more. Yeah. Because Industry 4.0 is infectious. Once it starts in one little space, it's like a little fire, it's a little spark. It'll, it'll spread like a forest fire to other areas. Once you start to get good at, let's say, knowing when the machine shuts on and off, then you'll get good at knowing why the machine shuts on and off. And then you'll be able to simulate and predict when it's going to shut off. And then you'll be able to use AI technology to actually simulate when that's going to happen so that you can actually predict when it's going to happen before it actually happens. And then you'll use simulation to eliminate all that. Yep. <laughs> so that's Industry 4.0, brother. That's it. And it all started with just staying in your lane, just in that one piece, right? Yep. And it breathes into so much more. And we're, we're trying to do the same thing. And we're a small company, don't get me wrong. And we're not doing anything just like this, just mysterious or anything like that. We're just a small company trying to navigate our way through an industry where we have so many threats. And we're going to use Industry 4.0 to make ourselves a little bit more special and a little bit more unique so that we can whittle that niche, so we can find our space, so that we can all just be happy and, and go on to our days. I love it. And uh, your company is led by a Star Trek fan. So that's also a good thing. Live long and prosper, brother. And same to you, John. Thank you so much for chatting with me on Friday. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to chatting again soon. Same here. And I can just keep up doing that work. Just keep fighting hard for our industry and for Southwestern Ontario manufacturers. Absolutely.